It's good to be back and I'm looking forward to sharing with you over these next four weeks as uh, together we look at this book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray and ask for God's spirit and wisdom as we uh, read together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the gifts that you pour out upon your people. You are kind and gracious beyond anything we could hope or imagine. Uh, We pray that you would grant to us your spirit of wisdom, uh, that we could learn truly and well from this uh, remarkable uh, document, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Please uh, open our eyes and hearts to hear and see what you're saying. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My parents worked really hard in life. They were immigrants to this country. My mum was a a pommy peasant and came out here because the government was looking for uh, immigrants and so they paid for her way here called the £10 Passage. You may have heard of it. Uh, My dad was a Hungarian immigrant and that meant that he couldn't speak English. Uh, He was a highly educated person uh, in Hungary but that wasn't recognised here. The way he earned his money initially at least was to collect glass bottles. Back in the good or the bad old days you could collect glass bottles and if you got enough, then you could take them along and you get sort of a penny a bottle. And that's how he ate and lived. Uh, they met each other and uh, after five long, hard years of trying to have kids, uh, finally they were blessed with the most unimaginably excellent blessing that can ever be received by two parents. And they're this, this anyway, me. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, they were delighted and suddenly had a, and then two years later had another kid. They got to the age of 65 with substantial assets under their belt, uh, essentially millionaires. Uh, they had two adult children who hadn't disgraced themselves particularly badly yet. Uh, in every way, you think that they were set for a smooth cruise home. They'd done the hard yards in their life, very hard yards at times. Then came a sequence of bad decisions over the next 10 years that left them basically broke separated initially and then divorced, and in my dad's case, uh, relatively estranged from his kids and grandkids since he moved to the other side of the planet uh, where he died unexpectedly due to complications that arose during surgery, a relatively straightforward surgery, two years ago. An acquaintance of mine is, if the truth be told, an idiot, what the Bible calls a fool. He's utterly rigid in his own views to the point where, by definition, People who disagree with him are wrong because if they were right, then they'd agree with him. Uh, He wanders through life like a bull in a china shop with, frankly, very little idea of the amount of damage he causes to people around him. And yet, in his church, he is highly respected, even awed as something of a pillar and actually has a significant spiritual influence for good in the lives of many people. Another acquaintance of mine, uh, the most intelligent person I've ever known, is also amongst the most relationally incompetent people I've ever known. And this guy who is frighteningly smart has spent uh, the best part of his life being desperately lonely. I can tell you a hundred stories like this, stories that illustrate the fact that so often life just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't work out the way you think it should. And I suspect if we had the time and uh, you had the desire, you could tell your own hundred on top of it. Welcome to the world of the teacher. Or if you have uh, your Bible open, make sure you do bring your whole Bible to uni. Uh, That that sort of Reader's Digest version. 
uh, is not the way to go. Bring Ecclesiastes, and you'll note in the footnote uh, to verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes that uh, the teacher is also known as Kohelet. Uh, Kohelet literally in Hebrew means the one who gathers uh, or, or the gatherer. Uh, and in uh, Greek, that's translated into Ecclesia or Ecclesiastes, uh, which is why the book has its English title as we have it. It means the gatherer. Kohelet, the teacher, the persona at the centre of this most disturbing book in the Bible. I think that's fair to call it that, isn't it? The most disturbing book in the Bible. You're at uni, it's a time of life when you're still relatively fresh-faced and enthusiastic about things. It's a time zone that promises a lot. Uh, you may have heard some people speak about the best years of their life or when they were at uni. I think that's a little, you know, sad myself. Uh, but there you go. It ha raises hopes, but perhaps only to throw them back at us, laughing in our faces. It's a good opportunity, actually, uni, to spend these weeks wrestling with life's contradictions as they are presented to us by the teacher. Our plan of attack will be as follows. This week uh, we're going to look at the big picture, introducing the book as a whole, and in particular, I want to suggest uh, that the way that we normally understand the book, the way that we normally understand the book, actually blunts its uncompromising message. And we need to find a different way. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then over the following three weeks, we're going to look at uh, two of the key issues in Ecclesiastes, wisdom and justice, and see how and why the teacher challenges the meaning and significance of even these very precious things, wisdom and justice. And we'll conclude by looking at youth and God and seeing how they augment uh, the book's message. It's a scary ride, frankly. Uh, I want to suggest to you that you take some time to add uh, to whatever you're reading, your devotions at the moment. I'm slowly working my way through John's Gospel. We're up to chapter 9, and I'm enjoying that a great deal, seeing Jesus you know, and the Pharisees and so on. Uh, but, but add Ecclesiastes to it, whether it's on the train, home, or into uni, whatever it might be. Just take the next month to work your way slowly through Ecclesiastes, openly and honestly. It's a scary ride, and you might be tempted to back off a little bit. It's a bit like being grabbed by the scruff of the neck, according to a friend of mine, and slammed up against the window of life, nose pressed flat, and made to witness it in all its contrariness and contradiction. It's sobering, but I want to suggest it's also an inoculation. Life is contrary and contradictory, and when we run face first into those things, if, if we're not ready for them, if our faith is shallow and brittle, if we have not much more in the cupboard except a bit of Western naive optimism because things just get better and better, together with a few Christian thoughts, if that's all you've got, then you'll be shaken to the core and maybe even broken in two. I know lots of people who've sat here in EU lectures and public meetings who, when they've been just hit by life, haven't had what it takes inside, haven't had a faith that is deep enough to cope with the realities of life. Kohelet, the teacher, gives us a small dose of spiritual flu up front. It's a bit of a jab in your butt. It hurts. And as you wrestle with it, it may be that you kind of get the shakes a little bit and break out in a sweat. But as we parents always say when we take our kids along to get their needles, son, you've got to be cruel to be kind. Well, let's see what the teacher has for us. 
chapter 1, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Presumably verse 1 is penned by an editor of some, thought, of some sort who introduces what's, uh, what follows as written by an, an unnamed but identified figure. The son of David, says the editor, king in Jerusalem. Two things about this. Uh, David's son was, of course, the well-known Solomon, renowned in the Bible as the wisest person ever, whose wealth matched his wisdom. And as chapter 2 unfolds, where the teacher goes on the wildest ride of them all, that, that seems to make sense. Here's a person who has the capacity to do the sorts of things described in chapter 2. But if it really was Solomon himself who wrote this book, uh, it's almost certain that the editor would have said so. And so what most scholars agree uh, is that we have here a persona, someone's thought presented as that of Solomon, although without strictly speaking saying it, and thereby kind of getting the kudos of being associated with Solomon, presented as being as wise as Solomon. Uh, it's, not, it's not deception, I don't think. It's a literary technique. Notice then verse 2 actually introduces us to what the teacher says and he wastes no time but rather announces the theme that will dominate the entire book uh, bringing a unity to the 12 chapters of otherwise seemingly meandering reflections on a sequence of barely related topics. Ready? In case you get lost anywhere in Ecclesiastes here's pretty much what he's saying. Vanity of vanities says the teacher vanity of vanities all is vanity. That is the point of Ecclesiastes. You need to be no confusion about it. And the teacher explores and expands and unpacks that with a razor-sharp gaze. And of course, what that's going to mean is that right from the start, we need to get a good grip on what the word is that is used and translated for us, vanity. So here's your first Hebrew word for the day. Hevel, you say B as a V in Hebrew, for reasons that I have not the faintest clue about. Uh, we have that translated, at least in the NRSV, uh, vanity. Uh, vanity normally means what you do at the gym when you spend more time looking in the mirror than concentrating on the weightlifting, uh, though in my case that's more imagination than vanity. Um, it's the old sense, old-fashioned sense of the word that's meant here, vanity in the sense of futile or worthless uh, or a waste of time. The Apostle Paul from time to time says to people, was it in vain that I proclaimed the gospel to you? What Was it in vain that you believed? That is, was it something that's turned out to mean nothing and do nothing in the end after all? The basic sense of Havel here is, is vapour or breath. And you can see how you get from there to vanity, can't you? In fact, the Bible uses it that way from time to time. Uh, Psalm 39, verse 5, You've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Just, you know, that's, that's it. Nothing much at all. Surely everyone stands as a mere havel. Surely everyone stands as a mere a breath or, or vapour. Uh, I live in a park. And uh, at least my house is in a park. And um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes uh, there's a fog 
in the park in the morning. And it's just fantastic, right? The kids wake up and, oh, check out the fog. It's really great. And they look at it and it's sort of wasping and wisping around. And then you get down for breakfast and the sun sort of comes up and, and it just vaporizes. Is that what you call it? Just, just go. It's just gone. You've made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely everyone stands as a mere havel, a mere fog, a mere breath, a mere vapour. Uh, the same point is made in Proverbs 31. This, I thought I'd bring this to you uh, just in case you're in any confusion about this at all. Ready? Blokes, take careful note. Charm is deceptive and beauty is havel, fleeting, vaporous. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, I know that you believe that, don't you? Yes. You're not after charm. You're certainly not interested in beauty. You're, all those sort of pictures you see. No, no, no. You know. Woman and girls, I know that you believe this too, don't you? Magazines, they don't affect your you know, self-image and desire. Yes, right. So beauty is Havel. But a woman who fears the Lord, that's, that's not Havel. That's substance. That's real. That's got depth to it. Now, in the way that we normally understand Ecclesiastes, I'm not sure if you've done Bible studies or heard sermons on Ecclesiastes before, but often the way it's been presented to me, I remember being at EU Talks where this point of view was made, exactly as I'm about to tell you, is that you take this idea of Havel and you add it to a phrase that appears in verse 3, under the sun. And the way Ecclesiastes is often taken is that it puts those two things together and comes up with a message, namely that life under the sun is Havel. Life under the sun, interpreted to mean life apart from God, life lived in an entirely material, godless way, that life is vanity. That life is worthless and trivial or meaningless, which is the NIV translation. But, but life lived not under the sun, life lived under God, which is where the last part of the last chapter of Ecclesiastes get to, gets to, life lived under, the, under God, that life is not Havel, is not vaporous. I even have a friend uh, who uh, takes this the next step further and holds that since the only thing that really lasts into eternity, the only activity that really lasts into eternity is Christian ministry. Uh, you know, what do you study? Uh, pharmacy, say. You're a pharmacist, what do you do? You give drugs to people to help them get better until they die. That's pretty much accountants. You're an accountant, what do you do? You help rich people get richer. You're a lawyer. You protect large corporations from losing even a slight bit of money to some poor person. I mean, don't call me a cynic, will you? <laughs> I mean, think of a profession. You're a doctor. What do you do? You prolong lifespans just by a few percentage points. You're a teacher. You shout at kids six hours a day. <laughs> you know, just go down. That, it's all vaporous, isn't it? It's all vaporous, all these professions. So goes this line of thought. The only thing that lasts, the only thing that doesn't get vapoured away is Christian ministry. The only thing that escapes the condemnation of the teacher that all is vanity 
is Christian ministry, and therefore, as a friend of mine put it, who gave a talk on this and made this point, he says, give up your day job, you see, and do Christian ministry. Uh, that makes me feel good. I feel pretty terrific. You, you're a bunch of vaporous, you know. But me, I do something that's worthwhile doing. Now, come along to Equip Conference on Saturday if that view doesn't entirely satisfy you. If it, if it works for you, then hey, if it works for you, uh, we'll see you in the Howard Guinness Project next year. That's pretty cool. If it doesn't work for you, come for a slightly more, I think, biblically adequate account of why do Christian ministry. It's part of this whole view that life lived under the sun is vanity, life lived under God. Actually, it escapes what Ecclesiastes said. In other words, the whole of Ecclesiastes is seen here as a kind of the bad news about being a non-Christian that comes before the good news about being a Christian. It's, it's Ecclesiastes is really the sort of base two of leading people to Christ. But of course, it has nothing much to say about the Christian life. It doesn't have anything to say to you if you're a Christian here. It just gives you sort of arrows in your quiver to be able to talk to people. I think that's a comforting way to read Ecclesiastes. Problem is, it just doesn't wash with the text. God doesn't wait until the end of Ecclesiastes to make an appearance in the book. In fact, as you read it through, you'll find that 39 times throughout the middle of Ecclesiastes, God is strongly present. He's fair and square in the middle of life under the sun, you see. Life under the sun is not life apart from God. It's precisely life lived on this planet, in this life that we have from God, with God. That life, the real life. And it's just not the case that what Ecclesiastes said, it says is that if you put God in the middle of your picture, then all is well. Now, I think we get a better sense of what the teacher is getting at by this key word, Havel. And we need to take our time because it influences everything about how we read Ecclesiastes. Is that we take this idea of fleeting, but also get another idea of uh, elusiveness. Something that you just can't quite get your hands on. Uh, at the end of uh, the chapter, uh, in chapter 1, the teacher uses a parallel phrase to describe a similar kind of thing, that is, a chasing after wind, or literally, a shepherding of the wind. Now, you could try this uh, on your way home. Uh, just have a go. I'd like to see you do it actually out in the quad, because that would be in full view of lots of other... Try shepherding the wind. It doesn't work! Wind is not shepherdable stuff. You can't wrestle it to the ground and get it under control. It's elusive. It's unmanageable. You see, and what the teacher is saying is that life, life is elusive and unmanageable and not something that you can control. Perhaps the best word that we could use uh, is, uh, to translate Havel is absurd. The key thought uh, in the idea of the absurd is that there are two things that are linked together, or at least should be linked together. Everything tells you that they ought to be linked together, but they're not linked together. The link is broken down. Hard work ought to produce good results. That's the way the link works. Here are two things that should go together, but it's absurd when they don't work out. I 
uh, you studied initially economics law here at uni and uh, did many contracts lectures in this very theatre uh, back when it was old and really, you know, like a proper old lecture theatre instead of nice and modern with technology. Uh, I, I loved contracts. I, in fact, I read everything there was to read about contracts. We had a textbook. I read the textbook and summarised it. We had a case book. I read the case book and um, we're talking legal case books. They're about this fat, actually. And uh, I, I read every case that was in the case book. I read every case that was an optional case to read. I read every recommended case. I knew everything there was to know about contracts. I produced summaries of all of this knowledge. My summaries became a classic in the field. They would be handed down from generation to generation of EU law students. I'd see them photocopied, faint and thin. And someone would say, gee, these are fantastic summaries, aren't they? I didn't put my name on them, sadly. So I got no credit for this. But I'd say, yeah, I wrote them. These were great summaries. I tried my hardest in this. I worked as hard as I could. You know, you don't really work as, the hard as, as hard as you can. You never really try your hardest. It's important not to do that, right, at uni, isn't it? Because then you've always got the excuse that, well, I could have tried harder. Right? I, I, I risked it once with contracts. I did the exam. I got 71. Mr. 71 was what I am. That's what I was. 71. Hard work, profoundly mediocre result. I had a friend who was doing honours in chemistry at the time uh, who didn't attend barely a lecture, hadn't read barely a case, didn't even own the textbook. Uh, and because I'm a gracious and slightly dopey person, I gave him my summaries. Uh, he read them the night before. I passed him uh, in December, you know when you get the results back, just before Christmas, uh, I passed him in the car. He went down his window, I went down my window. I said, how'd you go in your exam? He said to me, 75. I think it's the greatest act of spiritual control I've had in my life that I didn't run into him! <laughs> Hard work should produce good results. It is absurd that I can bust my buns on this course. And he reads my summaries for a night. Now, that's trivial, isn't it? That's trivial. But what if it's not just contracts? What if it's your entire career? What if it's your whole life's work that goes that way? What if it's your marriage that's like that? What if it's your friendships that's like that? It's absurd that life can be that way, isn't it? It's absurd that wisdom ought to produce a better outcome than being a fool, but both end up dead anyway. It's absurd that pleasure is by definition better than pain, but it hardly satisfies. Uh, at the church where I serve, we ran out the hall from time to time. We had an 18th birthday party there on Saturday night. Uh, they had a um, heavy metal band. I'm not quite sure what the difference between heavy metal and light metal would be, but these guys were about the heaviest metal, heavy metal band. You, I, they had speakers that pretty much covered the entire front of the church hall from floor to ceiling. I've never seen, actually, I didn't know there were speakers this size. Uh, there were about 80 people at the party and, and, and 70 of them were outside the hall uh, trying to talk because they still couldn't talk. There were 10 of them inside the hall who spent their life going... <laughs> I didn't actually think people did that, but I poked my head in just to have a look and there they were just doing this in front of the speaker. <laughs> great pleasure. Great pleasure. What happens the next morning? 
It's gone. They wake up. They can't hear for two days. <laughs> it's absurd. It's absurd, says the teacher. Now, hear this loud and clear. He's not saying that these things, or more broadly everything, is absurd in the sense that it's just kind of incongruous or ironic. That's too light. Now, he's got something far deeper and bigger to say. He's not saying that life is kind of paradoxical or mysterious. That implies that if only we were smarter or had more insight, then we could figure things out. He's not even saying that things are meaningless, really. I think the NIV's just kind of missed it here a, a little bit. Things can have meaning in and of themselves. At times, a teacher will say, one thing is better than another. What the teacher says is not that he doesn't understand. He understands all right. He understands that things are just irrational. That the world is warped. We live in a world that we can neither fully understand nor fully control. It is elusive. It is vaporous. And in fact, most of the time, our understanding our control and our control are very, very, very limited. You have enough time, enough hard, hard enough time understanding even yourself and controlling even yourself, don't you? The reason that Ecclesiastes, the teacher, will say that life is absurd is precisely because he refuses to give up on either of his two fundamental convictions. On the one hand, he holds desperately on to the fact that God is God and God is in control and that he is good and he never lets go of that. That's the oughtness in life. It ought to make sense. But on the other hand, he never lets go of the fact that life and things are bad, or at least sometimes bad, often enough bad, that it just doesn't make sense. Less courageous thinkers let go of one pole or the other, don't they? Less courageous thinkers say, let go of this pole. They let go of the idea of God, and that he's good, and that he's in control, and they just get kind of despair. Or, or, or less courageous thinkers let go of the fact that life is bad and, and they keep singing to themselves, I'm H-A-P-P-Y, I'm H-A-P-P-Y, I, I know I am, I'm sure if I sing it enough times I really am convinced that I will be, I'm, what is that song again? I'm H-A-P-P-Y. They sort of wander around pretending with their head firmly planted in the sand. And they don't engage with the pain in other people's lives. And they don't engage with the pain in their own lives. The teacher holds both. And that's why for him the conclusion is vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is absurd. His complaint is uh, that, the biggest complaint in this is that there is no ultimate advantage in anything. Verse 3, what do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun. Here's your second Hebrew word for the day. You see, even if you don't learn anything else, you'll know how to impress your friends. Yitron. Yitron, gain, profit, is a key to understanding the teacher's uh, idea of the absurdity of life. Yitron is concerned with the surplus on an investment. Uh, my wife... Uh, with a, a colleague, started a vet business four years ago. They work 
about 30 hours a week uh, face to face and then I guess maybe 5 to 10 hours a week on top of that just doing other stuff, organising things and, so on, and things and so on. For months they didn't draw a salary at all. They employed some vet nurses uh, uh, and those vet nurses got salaries but for months after this business opened they got no salary at all. For the last four years, or three and a half years I guess, uh, they received a very modest salary, a salary actually less than the lowest paid vet nurse. Now vet nursing, I mean it's not, uh, it's a very noble thing, it's just you don't have to go to uni for five years and study vet nursing. They got no Yitron from doing this business. Not that I'm bitter about that, I mean I, we invested thousands, oh, I won't go to it. There is no Yitron, says the teacher. There is no Yitron, no real advantage, no strides forward in life. That's why it's absurd, because there ought to be. I mean, verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Massive, massive energy of each generation of human beings. And what happens to them? They go, and the next one comes, and then they go, and the next one comes, and the earth remains forever. Enormous effort. No change. No yitron. It's much the same with the natural elements. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. I mean, think of the enormous effort it is for the sun to swing around the earth like that, rising and... or whatever it is, the earth around the sun... <laughs> the, 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 the wind goes on its circuits verse 7 all streams run to the sea have you ever thought about this the rivers all go to the sea what should happen the sea fills up but no it doesn't happen does it why because you know evaporation <laughs> to the place where the streams flow there they continue to flow massive massive energy no no change no yitron just a repeating cycle without any real progress. And for the teacher, this is not a comforting thought. You know, sometimes you're feeling a bit stressed. What you might do is go to the beach. And you sort of you chill out on the beach and you hear the whoosh of the waves coming in and then the, and the whoosh of the waves coming in. And you kind of chill out there for a little bit. Whoosh. And if you're an extrovert, then maybe after about seven minutes, you get bored of that. Uh, if you're an introvert, you can handle maybe, you know, an hour or something. Um... And, and then you've got to get on with something, don't you? This is not a comforting reality for the teacher. That's the Buddhist way, actually, to find comfort in the eternal sameness of everything. That it's a deep truth to be embraced and gradually to be absorbed into so that you become nothingness, just a nothing zot in the great ocean of being. Now, the teacher's reaction is one of protest. There's no yitron, there's no profit, and there should be. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. Or perhaps I think a better translation is all things work hard. All things make wearisome. All things are hard at work. More than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. That's very gracious of the teacher, isn't it? In the past, no one remembers the people in the past. In the future, the people after them won't be remembered by them. 
What's the generation actually that he omits making this comment about? <laughs> you. Us. No one's going to remember us. In the history of Sydney, when the history of Sydney is written, will you rate even a single line? No. What, what about the history of your suburb? I mean, let's not be too ambitious. The history of your church. We are just hardly anything, aren't we? Hardly anything. Nothing changes because of us. What's more, this is not the lazy conclusion of a fool, someone who simply can't be bothered with doing the hard yards. Verse 12, I, the teacher, when king over Israel and Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and sea. All is vanity. All is absurd. And a chasing after wind. The teacher claims to have undertaken a universal investigation, one that encompasses all that's done under heaven, to have searched it all out by wisdom. And still his conclusion is the same. All is absurd. As the proverb puts it, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, you can't count what's not there, can you? A little later, the teacher makes clear how he understands this. Chapter 7, verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? What is crooked can't be made straight. This life is crooked and who's made it crooked? It's God who's made it crooked according to the teacher. This, this impossibility, this lack, this opposite of Yitron, this thing that's missing is nothing less than the work of God. It's he who has given human beings their unfortunate business in life to be busy with. And so his conclusion, verse 16, I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassed all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a chasing after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Uh, when we had our first kid, Miles, he cried a lot. Uh, in fact, he cried a very great deal. And a friend of ours used to say that the reason he cried was that there was a, was it because he was a thinker baby. Okay. And we did a bit of research into this. There's no great physiological uh, you know, analysis behind this kind of theory. Uh, but there are two kinds of babies. There are thinker babies that cry a lot and there are babies that are dumb and happy. <laughs> we desperately begged God to make our child dumb and happy. But no, he was a thinker baby. And uh, we had to put up with that. Well, the teacher says that's pretty much the way it is throughout life. In much wisdom is much vexation. And those who increase knowledge, you know what they get for it? They increase sorrow. Why? Because the more you understand of life, the deeper your insight, the better your observation, the more compelling is the conclusion that is drawn. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is absurd. All is vanity and a chasing after the wind. You can see why it's tempting, can't you, to say, yes, that's the non-Christian life. But that's not my life. 
Oh, no, 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 no. And you're kind of saying no, 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 no enough times to try and convince yourself that actually these things aren't true of you, but they are. They are. And as we read through Ecclesiastes, uh, I hope you do that over this next month and we, we work through it together and, and work hard on it. Uh, you know, you've got to come to terms with what's being said here. There's another ancient Israelite book uh, that's not in the Bible. It's called Ecclesiasticus. Okay, don't get confused. There's Ecclesiastes and there's another book called Ecclesiasticus. It's a much happier book. It's confident that everything will work out in the end. Its final words are, May your soul rejoice in God's mercy and may you never be ashamed to praise him. Do your work in good time and in his own time, God will give you your reward. Now, that's the kind of thing that should be in the Bible, isn't it? Right? It's happy. It's positive. You know, we all need a bit of a boost these days. Build up our self-image. The interesting thing is, neither the church nor the synagogue decided to include Ecclesiasticus in their scriptures. Instead, both went for Ecclesiastes. In all its darkness and difficulty. And that's because it speaks the truth about life. Not all of life, but about life taken as a whole. Life is Havel. Life is Havel. There is no Yitron. Life is Havel. And you've got to work hard uh, to kind of really get what it is that the teacher's saying here. He's going to go on and say two crucial things about this collapse of meaning. Two things which function to give him and us the strength to likewise hold on to both convictions to cope with the fact that life is absurd precisely because God is God and God is good and life is often enough bad. On the one hand, he says, this collapse of meaning into the absurd is not the whole story for God allows us to build small meanings. Small meanings from the broken pieces of reason and experience. These small things, usually termed by the teacher as pleasures, the local pleasures of work and relationships, life's small joys, uh, they don't rescue the big picture. They don't suddenly make everything non-havel. But they do operate within it. They're real and they're good and they're from God. And we're to receive them as such. The meals and conversations and tears even that we do with friends, the magic sporting moments, the spectacular journeys... They're not grandly meaningful, the teacher will say, no, but they are good. Enjoy them as from God. But on the other hand, this very fact of the collapse of meaning is not somehow apart from the purposes of God. See, what the teacher will say to us is that this collapse of meaning is itself what God intends. For after it comes fear. And fear is what God desires. Not a fear that makes everything work out after all, but a fear that recognises that God is in heaven and you and I are on earth and therefore our words should be few, actually. Well, we're going to explore these two themes over the next few weeks, but let me finish then by reading to you a portion, a fair portion of chapter 3, which I think brings them together uh, with real clarity. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain have the workers from their toil? I've seen the business that God has given everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for people, uh, for them than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gifts that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor t- anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would grant to us uh, that same spirit of, of brutal honesty uh, that the teacher had. Uh, that you would give us the courage uh, to face uh, the reality of our lives. And you would uh, grant to us to go even beyond that courage to awe, the right fear of you. And we ask it for your glory.